The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Now, after just 100 days, I can report to the nation, America is on the move again. President Biden there declaring America is rising anew in his first address to a joint session of Congress. The Commander-in-Chief hails progress on vaccines and the economy after unveiling a new $1.8 trillion spending plan and explains how he'll pay for it. I will not impose any tax increase on people making less than $400,000. But it's time for corporate America. And the wealthiest 1% of Americans have just begun to pay their fair share. Yields slip and stocks falter after the Fed chair, Jerome Powell, flags some froth in equities whilst holding policy steady as expected and repeating that it's too early to talk tapering. It's not time yet. Uh, we've said that we would let the public know when it is time to have that conversation. And we'd said we'd do that well in advance of any actual decision to taper our asset purchases. Apple sales jumped 54% as it posts double-digit growth in every product category and announces $90 billion in share buybacks, while Facebook revenue rises almost 50%, driven by higher-priced ads. Airbus warns the crisis is not yet over for the industry, as the French aviation giant posts a 147% jump in first-quarter-adjusted operating profit and sticks to its outlook. And Standard Chartered's underlying profit jumps 18% in the first three months of the year as the lender's wealth management arm has its best ever quarter. But the bank is warning of a volatile and uneven recovery ahead. I promise you a bit of everything in this first hour. It's going to be very quick. There's going to be a lot of news coming, so let's just kick off straight away. Lufthansa reports a narrower first quarter loss, expects a recovery in the second half of the year. They've lost 1.05 billion euros. Uh, that's the net loss, almost half the loss it posted for the last year's first quarter as well. It said demand is expected to pick up only gradually in the second quarter and saw a significant market recovery in the second half of the year. That's what it's saying. It hopes the vaccine rollouts will provide that platform. Let's get to Aneta, who has more. So, Steve, the numbers look really bad, but the numbers are better than expected. Um, when we drill through the numbers, for example, revenues coming in at 2.6 billion, that's ahead of expectation, which was 2.4. We have adjusted EBIT at minus 1.1. This is also better than expected. And, and that is, uh, and also the adjusted cash flow is better than expected. So I guess um, <clears throat> analysts and investors wanted to also have kind of get um, an idea of how big the cash drain is currently at Lufthansa. So they're burning to 235 million per month. That is also less than um, in the previous quarter and less than expected. So overall, of course, the number look awful, but um, there is some silver lining on the horizon with them thinking there will be a strong rebound in air traffic in the second half of this year. Of course, that's all 
uh, an equation or all depending on how the vaccination, especially in Europe, is going. Currently, capacities are still low. What we've heard recently from Lufthansa is that they're planning on having a capital increase approval by the upcoming AGM to be able to repay the state aid, uh, which currently sits at 5.5 billion euro. With that, back over to you. Annette, terrific. Thank you for that. Well, let's talk about the makers of the planes that Lufthansa flies. Airbus has warned that, quote, the crisis is not yet over for the industry amid ongoing uncertainty. The aviation giant maintained its full year outlook issued in February while reporting a 2% dip in first quarter revenues. Uh, Charlotte, it just doesn't look a whole lot better for Airbus from here on in, does it? But I guess they still have the same uh, hope that we're hearing from Lufthansa about a rebound in air travel. Yes, that's right. They believe they are in the first line to be the one that benefit for the reopening of the economies and the rebound. And they're looking at the revenue. Well, that's a little bit above expectation with the revenue, as you said, just down 2% compared to the first quarter last year. But EBIT adjusted was up up 147% there, 0.7 billion. And like you said, they said the crisis is not over yet. And it shows that despite some positive results there with positive cash flow, net cash flow at 5.6 billion and free cash flow before MA at 1.2 billion, they still haven't changed uh, their forecast and their guidance that they gave in February, which would be the same number of delivery of planes that they had delivered uh, last year in 2020, where they were really hit by the worst of the crisis. So they're being cautious, even though they delivered a really good number of, of planes in the first quarter, mo- more than a quarter last year, 125 aircraft, as was 122 last year. So some positive momentum coming back. They said domestic uh, recovery in China and in the US is helping them. Of course, a lot of questions on, on long haul and on uh, travel in Europe. That's, that's why they're still being cautious going ahead. And we know that Airbus is going through a huge restructuring because of this gravest crisis that the industry has ever known, as the CEO had put uh, last year. And they're restructuring, they're cutting 15,000 jobs. They changed the management structure. They changed the whole industrial footprint announced just last week. So they are changing the entire business to turn that to, to this new uh, reality. But they believe that they are in the first pl- in the first line to benefit from the reopening of the economies. Karen. Charlotte, thank you very much. Uh, also on the earnings parade this morning, Nokia uh, Q1 numbers coming out. Uh, stock that's had a bit of a roller coaster stock market ride of late uh, around some of the retail investors getting involved in the stock. But uh, just going back to the fundamentals, it's a beat today. I don't think we've often said that around Nokia in recent years, but the new management now went. The company has come up with quarterly revenue up 3% to 5.08 billion euros. That is a beat of 4.72 billion seen in consensus. Uh, this is uh, it's had better than expected numbers around revenue and profit around the sales of 5G equipment. Uh, the underlying trend that many had hoped would finally lead to a turnaround in the business seems to be now gaining traction. If you also consider the operating profit line, 431 million euros. Uh, the number expected was 69.67, so a big beat on the operating profit line as well. CapEx is expected to be approximately 700 million euros in the full year 2021 and 600 million over the longer term. But uh, clearly a competitive environment out there. And don't forget Ericsson, uh, one of the other main competitors, but Huawei, those legacy issues after all the trade fights and the security fears in recent years. Jeff. 
Let's round out the corporates with a quick look at standard chartered numbers then that came in a wee while ago. Uh, the bank has reported an 18% jump today in underlying pre-tax profit, beating estimates thanks in part to record performance at the wealth management division over the quarter. The lender also pulled back from the uh, pandemic-driven uptake in prov- uptick in provisions for bad loans but they have warned in the outlook of a volatile and an uneven recovery. Okay, I'm sure you've heard snippets of it, but President Biden has claimed that America is on the move again as he marked his first 100 days in office with a speech to a joint session of Congress. Mr. Biden used the occasion to, uh, by the way, look, first time ever, two ladies behind the president as well, the vice president uh, and indeed, of course, the Speaker of the House. That's that's history. Uh, Biden used the occasion to urge lawmakers to raise taxes on corporations uh, and the ultra wealthy as he looks to fund his ambitious spending plans. The US leader also unveiled details of his one point eight trillion dollar plan to support families, children and students. Mr. Biden also addressed relations with China, saying that Beijing is closing in fast on America. In my discussion with President Xi, I told him, we welcome the competition. We're not looking for conflict. But I made absolutely clear that we will defend America's interest across the board. America will stand up to unfair trade practices and undercut American workers and American industries like subsidies from state to state-owned operations and enterprises, and the theft of American technology and intellectual property. I also told President Xi that we'll maintain a strong military presence in the Indo-Pacific, just as we do for NATO and Europe, not to start a conflict, but to prevent one. I told them what I said to many world leaders, that America will not back away from our commitments, our commitment to human rights and fundamental freedoms, The Federal Reserve acknowledged the U.S. economy is improving but maintained its easy monetary policy. As Chair Jerome Powell said, the recovery remains uneven and incomplete. Their FOMC said that inflation could rise in the coming months but warned it expects price pressures to be transitory. Officials also noted an improvement in the labour market. U.S. markets, though, dipped as Powell addressed that current policy would be maintained for the foreseeable future. It is not time yet. Uh, we've said that we would let the public know when it is time to have that conversation. And we'd said we'd do that well in advance of any actual decision to taper our asset purchases, and we will do so. In the meantime, we'll be monitoring progress toward our goals. We first articulated this uh, substantial further progress test at our December meeting. Economic activity and hiring have just recently picked up after slowing over the winter. uh, And it will take some time before we see substantial further progress. Well, let's get to Jim O'Sullivan then. Jim is chief macro strategist and joins us from TD Securities in New York. And Jim, as I was reading your note on Monday, uh, you were targeting March 2022 for the beginning of uh, the tapering story. Um, Any change in that timeline, given what we heard from Jay Powell uh, overnight? Hi, Jeff. No, no, not at all. I mean, certainly what we heard today is there's no rush to taper. So I think we can be confident it's not in the next six months. I think ultimately they will give us some advance notice, but um, we haven't heard it yet. So, I mean, if they started giving advance notice at the next meeting, then that would say maybe even earlier than early next year. But no, at this point, I'd say there's no sign of that. And certainly based on what he said today, they're not going to be in a rush. They think they're a long way from their goals. And as he said, it's a long, it's going to be some time before they think 
they'll get the substantial further progress that's needed for tapering. It did seem a little tin-eared of Jay Powell to talk about the froth in markets, but not directly connect that with the easy monetary policy that the Fed has been pursuing here. But I'm interested in the reaction function in the markets. I mean, we were becalmed and then we saw a, a big move down in the Dow. Why is the market not really responding to Jay Powell's dovishness? Um. I'm not sure is the, is the short answer. I mean, I think it has already is, is probably the, the full answer in that the markets had a very good run. And I don't think there's any doubt that that's very much tied to the very dovish Fed. So, I mean, yes, well, the, the bond market rallied a little bit when Powell used his sometime kind of long way from the goals language today, because um, people, some people were worried there would be a tapering taper countdown signal effectively. And we clearly didn't get that today but it doesn't seem to have done the stock market much good. But that said, even the bond market didn't move all that much. So it, it wasn't a big surprise, I would say, today. Jim, I want to pick up on those comments about setting the clock for exit because some also believe it could come next outing, that this may be the last one where you see this ultra dovish commentary before we start spelling out the route to exit at this point. What do you make of that? And what's the market reaction when we eventually do start to get some clues on how we unwind policy? How will the market react this time around? Yes. Well, I would say, I mean, I'd say, I don't think it's going to happen at the next meeting or, or the meeting after that. I mean, obviously, they've talked generally about needing to see substantial further progress toward the goals, and the goals are maximum employment and the 2% inflation goal as well. So they need, need to see both. And they're preparing us to see some pretty high inflation numbers over the next couple of months because of base effects, because of reopening effects. And they're suggesting that they'll be transitory. In any event, it'll take time to determine whether they're transitory or not. So really, it's going to be I'd say the fourth quarter before you have a better sense of how much of whatever strength we see in the next couple of months is transitory. And then on the labor market, Powell kept emphasizing that we're still down 8.4 million jobs. So even if you got 900,000 a month, as we saw last month, and that still wouldn't make much of a dent in that number for several months, I would say. So I don't think there's much risk of a taper countdown signal coming as soon as the next meeting, certainly, or even or even, or even the one after that, probably. I mean, I think it's going to be later in the year before you see it. Jim, it's an unusual cycle we're setting up for, though, on the economy and particularly around employment. We've had tweaking around the federal wages, uh, also, you know, lots of angst around ESG and trying to ensure that social aspect so workers are taken care of. But that said, also very strong demand coming back into the mix where companies are finding it very hard to predict what type of workforce they need. Some were even suggesting the labour market at the low end is tied to this point. I think those comments from Taco Bell the other week. So do we really have a clear picture on how quickly those jobs will come back based on what we've seen before? Um, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's going to take time. I mean, even if you got 900,000 a month, it's going to be a while before you make up that 8.4 million. And then on top of that, there's the lost ground in terms of labor force growth over the past year as well. So it's really more like a nine and a half million hole. Now, again, is it, is it totally smooth? Are some parts of the market tighter than others? Absolutely. So they will be judging these numbers over time. They'll be evaluating is, 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 is tightness transitory and does it take time to even out? They'll be watching the wage numbers. They'll be watching the inflation expectation numbers. But again, I think the message is that they're probably not going to jump to a conclusion on those numbers at this, as soon as the next meeting or even the meeting after. It's, it's probably going to take longer than that before they really reach a conclusion. 
Uh, Jim, I thought the junior senator from South Carolina actually had a, a very kind of traditional Republican response to what uh, the Democrat, Mr. Biden, said uh, yesterday in the joint session or joint speech to Congress as well. He talked about a, I think it was a liberal wish list of waste as well and talked about how there is zero bipartisanship going on at the moment as well. Does he have a point, given the fact that the president has tabled another $4 trillion worth of spending? Um, well, I mean, you can you can argue about who to blame, but <laughs> in any event, no, I don't think there's much chance of bipartisan agreement here. Um, I mean, certainly anything that includes tax hikes, corporate or individual, is not going to get probably a single Republican vote, which means they have to do it through the reconciliation process. And in turn, it means they have to totally stick together. They need 50 senators, all 50 senators on the Democrat side will have to vote for the package. So. Yeah, I mean, whether who, who you want to blame is, is debatable, but yeah, there's there's probably almost zero chance of getting any Republican votes for any package that includes individual or corporate tax increases. The spending side, I think there's a certain amount of agreement for for parts of it, the infrastructure parts, but obviously lots, lots, lots of it won't be met with agreement. So in the end, I mean, they'll talk about bipartisanship and try to talk for a bit. But in the end, it's, it's probably going to have to be all Democrats. Yeah, I can think of a, uh, a certain Democrat from West Virginia who might uh, balk at some of the spending uh, at the moment as well, certainly on the scale as well, uh, Mr. Manchin. But, but in terms of the importance of getting through uh, the American Family Plan and the American Jobs Plan as well, how important is that given what you've just previously said about the, the contained or continued stimulus on the monetary side? Well, I think it's, I mean, it's really very, it's very extended over eight to 10 years. I mean, the numbers sound huge, obviously. Four trillion sounds huge. And if you put it against one year GDP, it's 18% of GDP, but it's spread over eight to 10 years. So it's less than 2% of GDP per year over that time. And then of course there are tax hikes, which are equivalent to about 1% of GDP. So the net boost to the deficit is in round numbers about 1% of GDP over the next eight to 10 years. And meanwhile, the deficit is currently about 16% of GDP. And the stimulus over the past year was very much front loaded. So that's gonna start dropping off in fiscal 2022 very quickly. So the deficit is gonna drop pretty sharply next year and um, even with another package. So, I mean, I would argue that fiscal policy is actually gonna turn contractionary in 2022, which is a reason again, not to simply extrapolate the booming growth that we're getting in 2021. But again, the, the, the Build Back Better package is very much kind of a long-term package. It's not really about what the economy is doing over the next 12 months, I would say. Lovely to speak to you, Jim, especially at quarter past one in the morning. Well done you. I'm never coherent at that time. Normally asleep, actually. Uh, Jim O'Sullivan, Chief Macro Strategist, TD Securities, joining us uh, from the Big Apple. Thank you very much, sir. Right, coming up on the show, Equinor books a first quarter earnings beat boosted by oil prices and renewables. The CEO, Anders Oppedal, will join us after the break. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Uh, 
Equinor has raised its dividend after beating estimates in the first quarter. The Norwegian oil giant posted a 167% jump in core profits year on year to $5.5 billion, beating expectations. Delighted to welcome to the show Anders Oppedal, who is the CEO of Equinor. Anders, really nice to see you today, sir. Thank you very much indeed. Look, we were speaking to Bernard Looney in the week, and he's got a similar challenge to you. He wants to reimagine BP, uh, reinvent um, parts of the business, but also wants to be profitable in the meantime as well. Uh, you are clearly showing today that you are profitable in the meantime amidst this transition as well. But how quickly is the transition going? Well, good morning to all of you. Uh, now, that is the big question, isn't it? Uh, so, but we have said that uh, in, in our transition, we want to be a leading company in the energy transition, meaning that we will focus on improving our oil and gas uh, and produce oil and gas with as low emission as possible. And we will uh, accelerate the growth in renewables, but also develop new uh, projects into the low carbon solutions. And I think we've demonstrated with the results today, which are the best results since 2014, uh, that uh, com combining oil and gas and renewables can uh, actually give a good uh, profit. And yet, I know that the rejigging of portfolios is always a very important, bringing partners in is very important. But the sale of, um, what is it, the, the some divestments in your wind farms off the coast of Britain and the US, well, I suppose some people will look at that and scratch their heads and say, well, why do you sell stakes in those wind farms as well? Why don't you just grow them and, and take on a more dominant position in some of these assets? Well, this is uh, a part of our operating model. What we have been very successful, successful with over several years, and we've been in the offshore wind business for 15 years, is that we have been able to come in very early, uh, capture new uh, land, been able to develop this uh, uh, project, uh, and then also then sell down uh, to, to partners as a part of uh, this uh, project development. This can ensure higher return uh, on equity, uh, and it's a part of the, the model to ensure that we're getting the, the right return from our renewable projects. Anders, um, I guess the key issue for uh, the numbers really is what direction oil and gas prices are likely to run through over the rest of the year. There does seem to have been some modest recovery in European gas prices, but could you just update us on your expectations? Yes, I can do that. And uh, as you see, we have seen a recovery of the oil and gas prices uh, during the quarter, and uh, we've been able to capture uh, those uh, prices by high regularity in our uh, operating facility. Uh, particularly, we've seen a strong increase in the, in, in the gas prices. It's mainly driven by cold winter in Japan. Uh, this has led to less energy coming into uh, Europe. And we also had withdrawal from uh, the, the storage uh, here in, uh, in Europe. So, so this has kind of uh, given much higher prices uh, than we have seen over the past year uh, on, uh, on, on the gas. We will uh, expect that the normal seasonal variation will also come uh, this year, but we expect a, a higher uh, gas price uh, than we have seen, uh, for instance, last year uh, for, for the gas. For the, for the oil price, um, we see that the OPEC Plus uh, is working well uh, with their uh, holding back, uh, but there will be more supply coming to the market uh, soon. And the big uncertainty is how fast will the economy recover? How fast will the demand come back? How fast will people start flying again? 
so, uh, so there are some volatility, and we expect some volatility going forward, both on the gas and the oil prices. And that's why we would like to maintain a very strong balance sheet, so we are able to, to cope with those uh, volatility going forward. And as uh, you've had a strategy of providing energy with lower emissions than the industry average, but there's this increased focus now on energy transition. How are the conversations you've been having changed over the last 12 months with this increased focus by investors? Well, uh, I think the investors are really supportive in terms of that we are able to produce oil and gas with as low emission as possible. That gives us uh, much more... uh, robustness towards uh, increasing carbon prices and new carbon prices in different uh, in different uh, countries we we have a quite a high carbon price uh, in, in Norway and that's why we have focused really on reducing uh, the, the the emission from our own production but there is as you mentioned here a growing discussions around the scope tree and how oil and gas company can really also uh, uh, help uh, with uh, the scope three. That's why we're also focusing on uh, decarbonizing industries that are not able to kind of use renewables uh, as the source of an, an energy. That's why we're working with blue hydrogen and we have several projects in UK. Just recently was uh, together with partners awarded uh, uh, funding from the UK government to develop these projects uh, further. And we have the Northern Light projects in Norway that we do together with Shell Total and the Norwegian government, where we actually will uh, take uh, CO2 with uh, vessels from different parts of Europe, bring it to the western coast of Norway, and then pump it in to and store it safely in reservoirs in the, in the, nor- in, in the North Sea. So I think... Uh, with the increased focus on scope three, uh, we can also help industry to decarbonize, that, uh, that they cannot uh, decarbonize by using renewables. A slightly broader question, but attitudes uh, between the West and Russia and the Biden administration and Russia seem to be hardening here. Uh, and even Germany is being put under pressure over Nord Stream 2. And as, as you look at the medium to longer term outlook, uh, is there a possibility that we might see more Russian gas perhaps removed from the uh, Western European markets? Well, that is one of the outcomes. Uh, we also see that there are gas coming in from Ukraine uh, at the moment. Uh, so uh, this uh, actually, it's uh, quite a big uncertainty in this market as, uh, as I see it now. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to CNBC.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.